Hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't, there's probably one in the pew right in front of you there. And 1 Corinthians 15 is on page 1789. We've been going through this, um, this epistle, which means a letter, for the better part of the year. And we're kind of coming to the end here. Um, if you're new, 1 Corinthians is a letter written to a city in Greece called Corinth. And the Apostle Paul is trying to help um, help these people who believed in Jesus who are kind of screwed up in a lot of ways spiritually. He's trying to instruct them and help them, and a lot of these subjects really apply to us as well. So he's coming to the end here, and he is reminding them about the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And here's what he says. I'm going to read verses 1 to 11 in chapter 15. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Um, This morning we're going to have Chris Engelman, our pastoral intern, preaching, and I need to give you the what I say whenever we have that happen. Um, I feel like we're really fortunate to have Chris here. A couple weeks ago, I talked about the need to let people try stuff. And one of the things, one of the reasons guest speakers are important is because um, we, you, you and I, but you especially, need to be willing to spiritually hear from more than one voice. And you need to grow in your ability to hear from um, very imperfect human mouthpieces. Preaching is essentially the re-speaking of God's word um, mediated through a personality. And since you go to High Point, obviously your threshold for imperfect personalities is already pretty high. Um, but, uh, but that's an important spiritual discipline for all of us. Um, but also it's important to let people try things, and there's some level on which we can't build good preachers unless we let— um, younger, more inexperienced preachers preach. I would not have Chris speak to you if I didn't believe that he was competent, well-studied, and in earnest about what he was going to tell you. And that I, and I would not have him come if I didn't believe he had something to tell us um, consistent with God's word for us. So um, here's, here's the deal I want to make with you. It is my job to critique him, and I will. It is your job to listen to him and seek to hear what God would say to you through him, no matter how imperfect his delivery which isn't too bad. So um, why don't you welcome him, and Chris, why don't you come and share with us what you've prepared. Thank you. Got my toys out here. 
I actually swapped in a Facebook message with Adam Darbone last year's intern. He, he said that the critiquing process afterwards is not fun. So I that to look forward to tomorrow. Nick already mentioned, um, we talked about the relationship between vitality and letting new people try things. And it's an idea that excites me. Um, I hope it excites you too, because I'm praying and trusting that this won't happen. But if I do crash and burn up here, then we at least have vitality going for us. So. <laughs> We're moving on to a new series in uh, 1 Corinthians. We just finished up spiritual gifts going through chapters 12 to 14, and now we're into resurrection people. Today we're talking about the resurrection of Christ. It's a pretty big topic in our faith. I'm excited to be able to preach about it and happy that Nick didn't give me something like head coverings from earlier. I don't know what I would do with that. Um, really exciting stuff to talk about, and so I'm excited to get into this. Before I do, though, I want to give you a little bit of an explanation of where I'm coming from. It's just easier to hear from people and you know about people. So with that, these are my roommates. A lot of people, when they're um, introducing themselves for the first time, they will talk about their, their wife and their kids. I have roommates. And I tried to find some of the more awkward pictures of them on Facebook. Um, with Tony, it was a little bit tough. Many of you know Tony. He plays in the worship band here. He doesn't have a lot of awkward pictures. He's kind of a cool person. Ryan, on the other hand, is pretty easy. This is one of the first pictures on his profile. So. Um, fortunately, I'm a fairly thorough individual, and I found this picture of Tony from way back in the archives. I grew up in Coon Rapids. It's a suburb just northwest of Minneapolis. This is my family. Uh, me on the left before I had the aerodynamic haircut. And then my, my mom and dad, they're actually back here today. They came down from Minneapolis. So look at me, mom, I'm preaching. And then my sister, um, sister-in-law, and my brother. And then we have a new addition to our family, little, little Abigail Ray. She dressed up as a ladybug for Halloween. So I was told that it would not look cute if I did it. I went to the U University of Minnesota. I'll take it by your silence. You're applauding internally. I had a pile of roommates. Um, these guys were pretty instrumental in my spiritual growth. They're a great experience. After school, I stayed in Minneapolis. I was a mechanical engineering major, but took a job in IT, IT consulting company. And I was really excited about this job. Um, I accepted it right before I graduated and had two months between when I finished my studies and when I started. In that time, I spent a lot of time thinking critically about you know, what God would have for me in this job. Um, now that I was going to be a single 20-something, making more money than he needed to support himself, um, what are the ministries I could give to? Um, now that I was going to be traveling a lot, or at least I thought I was going to be, um, what did that look like in terms of just the people I would meet? And I was really excited to, to step into this and hoping to knock it out of the park for the glory of God. Unfortunately, about eight or nine months into it, I started to realize that this just wasn't what I was cut out for, and I wasn't experiencing a sense of victory in that. And so about six months later, I finally decided to, to walk away from it. I found myself signed up for an internship um, down the street at Hope Community Church. And this was um, a big step for me. I had not really considered full-time ministry before. And it was just leading up to that, I had gotten to the point where I was somewhat depressed about just what my future looked like. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I found myself a couple months into this internship after the previous year, um, you know, wearing my business casual to work every day, having a job that impressed my friends. Now I was um, still single at the age of 25, sleeping on a bunk bed and sharing a room. And so not what people dream about to, to do after college. But it was a time where um, God just sustained me in it. And knowing that the things that I was studying there and that the ministry I had a chance to get involved with, it had implications not just for my life, but even for eternity. And so that was just an idea that really consoled me. There was a passage in particular from the end of Isaiah chapter 40 where 
Um, it's verses 27 to 31. I'm not going to read all of it. But it just talks about how God doesn't forget his people and that he never, he never goes tired, he never goes weary. And then it goes on to just give imagery that really fires me up. It talks about how those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength, that they will soar on wings like eagles, that they will run and not grow weary, and they will walk and not be faint. And so I, I mention that and I tell that story just because today as we look in 1 Corinthians 15, we're talking about the idea of persevering in our faith. As we look at, uh, I'll read verses 1 and 2 again. It says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. I was saying that we need to continue in our faith. Um, as we look at this passage, we'll come up with this idea that the gospel needs to be kept as first importance for us to persevere. And I'm getting behind in my slides. Oh, I was actually only one behind. So the gospel needs to be kept as first importance for us to persevere in our faith. And first thing I want to unpack here is what, is, what do we mean when we say the gospel? Uh, many of us know the gospel means good news. Paul gives us a definition here in verse 3. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he goes on to talk about who he appeared to. That Christ died and rose again, it's a pretty simple definition. It has huge implications for us. This first one here that God now judges us as if we live the life of Christ. Um, as we think about what that means for us, that I was given an analogy a couple years ago that really stuck with me. Um, this pastor explained how it, if you are in great financial debt and then you were to marry Bill Gates or become one legal entity with Bill Gates, and now no longer is your debt completely gone, but you are way in the positive. And so when we made a decision to follow Christ, to, to surrender our lives to him, to follow him as Jesus Christ, or to follow him as, as Lord and Savior, uh, not only was our, our debt, our sin, forgiven by him being on the cross, but now we're seen as righteous. God's righteousness is imparted to us, and that's how God sees us. So we can have confidence that when we stand before him, we'll be accepted. Because of what Christ did, we are released from the law, which is the power of sin. In Romans 6-8, through 8, Paul carries out this idea, or develops this idea that sin shall no, shall no longer be our master. And he talks about how we're no longer under the covenant of, or the the law of sin and death, as it's described in Romans 1, that we're under the law of the Spirit. We're under a new authority. The law can no longer be used to um, condemn us and to produce guilt that actually keeps us further in our sins. We say the Holy Spirit lives in us. In Romans 8, the same passage that I just mentioned, also goes on to talk about how as we live in accordance with the Spirit, that our, our minds are according to what He desires, that over time our desires actually change. And I don't know about you, but that's an incredibly encouraging idea to me. Um, the sinful temptations in my life will lose their strength. Soon I'll keep growing in being excited about what God gets excited about. And then lastly, um, a huge implication of this is that we have authority as children of God over Satan and his demons. That's an idea that we often don't talk about as directly. Um, C.S. Lewis talks about how you can make two mistakes when you think about Satan, that you can either think that he doesn't exist or you can develop an unhealthy fascination with him. So we don't want to make either of those mistakes. In Luke 10, 19, Jesus says, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. So as we think about this idea that the gospel needs to be of first importance as we persevere in our faith, we see that the assurance of our salvation depends on our perseverance. And I put in parentheses, as we see it. Um, God knows the future. He knows who's going to persevere. He knows who's really in Christ. But from our perspective, we don't. I was told the story um, two years ago, or I guess when I was still in Minneapolis, there was a, a mentor of mine, and 
it was uh, the mentor of one of his former mentors, so kind of a chain of mentoring here. But this guy had uh, developed as a Christian leader, he really flourished in ministry, uh, led many people to faith. And yet later in his life, he ultimately not only walked away from his ministry, but he walked away and ultimately rejected God. And so that's a story that's a little bit unsettling to hear. Um, I look at my life and I want to think that I'm doing this for real. I'm really in Christ and I plan to do this for the rest of my life. But, you know, thinking about stories like that, this fear can creep in that um, what if I am just um, going through the motions? What if I'm just deceiving myself? Or what if some circumstance happens that just jades me to the point where I ultimately reject God? As we think about this question, I want to look at a few passages falling behind here. Uh, Matthew 10.22. Jesus plainly says that he who endures to the end will be saved. So like Paul here um, in 15.2, he's saying that there's a requirement that we need to continue in this for the rest of our lives. Then you look in Ephesians 1. It's a very encouraging passage that Paul writes. Ephesians 1 is. In verse 13 and 14, he says, And you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. We see this idea that the Holy Spirit, um, third person of the Trinity in us, is a seal and a deposit, a guarantee that um, God is going to sustain us. Uh, not too long ago, I helped a friend buy a car off Craigslist, and we gave a deposit the day before and then went back the next day. Um, both parties, because of the deposit, um, were on the hook to, to fulfill the transaction. And so God giving us His Spirit is His promise that He will fulfill this. That he will ultimately bring us to full redemption. So I don't want to qualify that at all. That's clearly what the passage means, and we can believe that. Ephesians, or looking in Hebrews 6, though, at first glance looks a little bit confusing. It says that we can share in the Holy Spirit, but still fall away. And I'll just read that passage. Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. There are some big ideas in this passage. I just want to focus on this idea that um, people can share in the Spirit, is what it says, and still fall away. Wayne Grudem is someone that I've relied on my understanding of this from pretty heavily in his Systematic Theology book. He talks about how the word share here has a, can be thought of um, to be associated with. And he talks about how this idea of tasting in the heavenly gift, tasting the powers of this coming age, the similar word is used when Jesus is on the cross and they give him vinegar. It says that he tasted it, but he did not drink it. We see that there's a, a distinction here between the person who Ephesians 1 describes who is a true follower um, and really has the Spirit in them with them and the other person described in Hebrews 6 that um, has maybe experienced some demonstration of the Spirit's power, or the, the, some demonstration of God's goodness, and might outwardly seem to be a believer, but really is not. And so the, the question as we think about this is, which one are we? I, I'm sure that person who fell away didn't, didn't consciously think he was a person that wasn't a true believer throughout his ministry. Um, so Wayne Grudem offers some questions that we can ask as we explore this question. The first one, do I today have trust in Christ to forgive my sins and take me without blame to be in heaven forever? I underline and bolded today. Um, this is one of the most truest indicators of where we're at. If we trust where we are in Christ today, if we trust Him for our salvation, then we can bank on the promises He gives us. The end of, end of Romans 8, Paul tells us that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, 
uh, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. We can believe that. He goes on, Do I have confidence in my heart that he has saved me? If I were to die tonight and stand before God's judgment seat, and if he were to ask me why he should let me into heaven, would I begin to think of my own good deeds and depend on them? Or would I without hesitation say that I am depending on the merits of Christ and am confident that he is a sufficient Savior? Do I see evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in my heart? Oftentimes we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, uh, these qualities in us that just demonstrate that the Spirit is in fact working in us. Galatians 5 um, lists those as love, joy, peace, patience, uh, faithfulness, goodness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. As we see these things in us, these aren't just things that we can fake. We might be able to pretend to be kind or to be loving for a short amount of time, but over the long haul, if we see these attributes in us growing, then that's solid evidence that the Spirit is in fact moving in us. Do I see a long-term pattern of growth in my Christian life? Jesus said that uh, if we love him, we'll obey him. Do we see ourselves growing in obedience to him over time? And many of us um, have been Christians for years or even decades. And as you look back to that time in your life when you decided to follow Christ, if you can see growth, it's a pretty solid indicator. Um, maybe you're a person who, you know, we're talking about the gospel, what that means a few minutes ago. Maybe that was the first time where it really made sense to you and you just decided that I want that to be true. I want Jesus as my Savior and Lord. Um, say you're sitting in your pew and you pray to God that you want that. You can have assurance. This isn't to say that you can't. It's just that the, the long-term pattern of growth will come about um, from here. So many of us, as we think about these questions, uh, we might have different feelings. Some of us might feel a little bit more confident that we see those things in our life. Others of us, we might feel a little bit uneasy as we think about these questions. And to the person who, who doesn't feel at peace about this, that's not to say you don't have, insur- have assurance. You just, it's not to say you do either. Um, it's kind of an unknown. And as you continue in your faith, you, know, you should see these evidences. I want to uh, say that you shouldn't pursue these evidences to demonstrate to yourself that you're saved. Um, Because when you do that, then you subconsciously start to rest on those things for your salvation, and that is not the gospel. So as we think about this idea that we need to persevere in our faith, that we need to hold the gospel's first importance, we need to remember that the gospel is real. It's not just some academic theory or philosophy. It's actually a historical event that really happened and really has big implications for our life. We all go through times when the gospel doesn't seem real. Um, it might be hard to, to see this picture. This is me trying to be artistic. It's a, a foggy road. You can only see a little ways ahead. We all go through times in our life where the gospel just might not seem real for whatever reason. I think of one time this past summer, I, was, I play volleyball in a Friday night league, and I did up until a few weeks ago, actually. It got pretty cold. But I was just looked around, and I asked myself, that if, if the kingdom of God is really coming, if Jesus is really going to be, if we're going to be resurrected to be with him for all eternity, if creation itself will be renewed, then why doesn't anyone around here seem to be thinking about it? You know, no one was really saying th- anything against the gospel, but it just seemed like it didn't even cross anybody's minds. And I started asking myself, why am I not thinking about this more? So I think sometimes as we, we're just surrounded by general complacency, it's often more difficult to believe the reality of the gospel in those times than when there's active opposition to it. Other times, you know, we have anxiety over responsibilities and trials. For me, earlier this week, getting ready to do this, um, that was a lot of anxiety, and I needed to, to preach to myself that God's power was, in fact, real and that he could use someone like me. We go through times of real suffering. Uh, there's someone who I've gotten to know the last couple of weeks at High Point. He's in the earlier stages of Alzheimer's, and 
I was talking with him last week, and he just talked about how, you just hear the heaviness in his voice as he talked about, in not too long, he might not even be able to recognize his wife. And that's real. That is heavy. He went on to say that he knows God can reverse that in a heartbeat if he wants to, that God is powerful enough for that, but that he also knows if God doesn't do that, that God will help him persevere through this. That was incredibly encouraging to me because not only does he, he have the right answer, not only does he know it, but he's actually believing it and actually moving forward in, it, in the face of a heavy trial. As we go through these difficult times when the gospel doesn't seem real, uh, Paul gives us objective evidence here. We have clarity. He goes on to say in, in verse 3, For what I received I passed on to you as a first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the, on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Paul says twice that it's according to scriptures. That's something we should pay attention to. And I want to unpack a little bit about what that means. Um, It was fun for me this week to to research this topic and look for messianic prophecies from the Old Testament before Jesus ever appeared. And I'm just going to share a couple of those. In... uh, Zechariah 11, uh, we see a prophecy about Judas, the one who was one of Jesus' close, trusted uh, disciples and then ultimately betrayed him and handed him over to be arrested. I'm going to read from Zechariah 11:12 now. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they priced me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord, the potter. So I'm sure if you're an Old Testament Israelite, it might be, you know, you're not really sure what that meant. There are three things I want you to pay attention to. The 30 pieces of silver, thrown into the house of the Lord, and the potter. Now we move forward 500 years later in history, Matthew 26, the account of Jesus, um, of his betrayal. It says, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. And then later on, in the next chapter in 27, it goes on to talk about how after Judas Judas betrayed Jesus, that he was filled with remorse, that he threw the money into the temple, into the house of the Lord, as Zechariah says, and that they used that because it was blood money. They used that to buy a potter's field. So going back to Zechariah, we see the 30 silver silver coins, we see the potter's field, and we see um, it thrown into the house of the Lord. Very specific, something 500 years earlier before it actually happened. And then before you think that maybe um, Jesus and his, his apostles tried to do this to fulfill that prophecy, the tre- chief priests who used that money to buy the field were adamantly opposed to Jesus being seen as a Messiah. And that's why he was crucified. And another example, Jesus' clothing. Looking in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, it says, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And then we look in Matthew 27, it says, When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. So again, pretty, pretty specific. And again, the people who carried it out, carried it out they were Ro- Roman soldiers. They, weren't, they didn't know about this passage from the Hebrew Scriptures. They didn't know what they were doing. And lastly, Jesus' triumphant entry in, into Jerusalem. He said he, says he rode a donkey. And uh, I'll just read from John 12, verses 14 to 16, which goes back to Zechariah 9, 9. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him, that they had done these things to him. 
So Jesus fulfilled this prophecy, but no one even knew he was doing it while he was doing it. It wasn't until afterwards that they, someone was reading through Zechariah, boning up on his minor prophets, and came across 9-9, and you know, all of a sudden the light bulb went out and was like, Jesus rode a donkey. This is talking about you know, this, the king coming and riding on a donkey. And so I like to imagine what it would be like um, if you're one of those of people who saw Jesus resurrected going through your Old Testament scriptures, seeing this pattern that was pointed forward to from all time. So we see this idea that we have this objective evidence according to scripture. Paul goes on to talk about how 500 people saw a resurrected Jesus after he was crucified. This would be an extremely bold claim to make, um, saying that most of them are still alive, seeing as this letter was written 20 years after Jesus was resurrected. If I tried to tell people that JFK was not in fact shot, that would quickly be dismissed because people were alive who saw it then. That's one of the, the classic arguments for the validity of the testimony of Jesus' resurrection. And as we also think about this idea of objective evidence, evidence that doesn't depend on our own opinions, we're gathering new objective evidence today. Uh, and I'm talking about miracles here. Um, I haven't experienced miracles myself, but people close to me have, and you, maybe some people here have, maybe you haven't. I'm going to tell you two stories. Uh, one is I mentioned that person I shared a room with when I was still in Minneapolis. I was taking uh, a class where we talked about spiritual gifts and went home that night, and so we were going to bed. I just asked him, like, do you have a sense of what your spiritual gifts might be? And he said, actually, I think it's healing. And I rolled over and looked down at him from my bunk and I, really, tell me about that because you've never mentioned this before. And then he talks about how six months earlier, and we've been living together the whole time and he never brought this up. Um, he talked about how six months earlier, he and some friends, he went to Tanzania because he, he and some friends from college had started a school for orphans there. So he's, he's, he's on his way there to visit. He stops in Kenya before he crosses the border. And he's a part of a worship service where he feels this heat and pressure on his shoulder and his forehead. And then the, the person leading the worship service said, if you feel this heat and pressure on your forehead and shoulder, it's just the Holy Spirit telling you he's there. And so my friend is, you know, he's never experienced anything like this before. He's just wondering, like, what is going on? What do I do with this? And then came to know that there would be this boy that the other boys would call Riki. Um, his full name was Eric. But that my friend was going to pray for him and he was going to be healed from HIV. And so my friend crosses the border, he goes to Kenya, and he'd never heard of this boy or heard his name, much less his nickname before. But sure enough, there's this boy whose name is Riki, and he's you know, very sick. He's not running around like the other boys are. And so this whole week, he really doesn't know how to move forward with this. He's never done anything like this before. And he asked the pastors about it, and they're like, you don't, you don't need to wait for another sign. You can, you can, you can take him and just pray for him and we'll see what God does with it. And so I got chills as he told me this story. He talked about going for a walk with this boy who he couldn't even communicate with because this boy spoke Swahili. Uh, my roommate did not. And just, he, he prayed for him and he did in fact get healed. A year later, he called back and he's, you know, how's Riki doing? Is he still healthy? And he, sure enough, he, he was. He's running around and they've lost track of him since then. The, the orphans there are very transient in nature and so they don't know where he's at now. But that year later, he was still healthy. I wasn't expected to live much longer. Um, that was what the school administrators had told my friend. So a very cool story. Uh, he knew about it before he, or he knew this boy's name, what was going to happen even before he got there. So that's objective. A second story I'm even more excited about personally. Uh, my own sister was actually healed from arthritis a couple months ago. And the way I found, this, found out about this, I went home. It was actually one of my first Sundays checking out High Point here. I went home, and I got on Facebook. I'm probably one of the only people who has found out about someone in their immediate family experiencing a miracle via Facebook. 
But I get home and I get on, I see this post that she made. And it says, I've had arthritis since I was 10 years old. I've uh, been to all sorts of doctors and specialists. And then God happened. I'm putting pressure on my joints like I, I haven't since I was 10. And so I'm sitting there on Facebook wondering, like, what? Like, did she get healed? And so I gave her a call and I was like, what, what, what happened, you know? And sure enough, she, she went forward. She was prayed for in church. And she tells a story. Um, the night before, she was woken up by a roommate and couldn't sleep. It's like 2 a.m. And just to tell you a little bit about my sister, she decides to get up and start working out, doing insanity. And there's this exercise. It's kind of like an up-down. She hasn't been able to do it, even with her shoes on, because of just the pressure it puts on her feet. Uh, but as she got home from church, without even like thinking about it, she didn't experience any special feelings like that during church. She gets home and barefoot, just drops down and does this exercise, and then realizes, wait, usually I feel pain when I do that. And kind of starts experimenting a little bit and realizes that like her arthritis is, is not there. As I talked to her about it this last week, is you know, how are you feeling? Is it still gone? And sure enough, it still is. So she wanted me to say that um, that didn't depend on her own faith, that she knows of people who have gone for it for healing hundreds of times and for whatever reason hasn't, haven't experienced it. But for whatever reason, God chose to heal her. And I'm excited about it, not only because she's uh, free from arthritis, but it's a, a strong evidence of his love to her and a story that can be shared. So I do also want to, to balance what we're talking about here, though. When we talk about objective evidence, that isn't what sustains us day to day. Oftentimes, um, you see in Psalm 78, this is something I came across in reading the Bible um, this past week, just in my morning time, and I was like, I can use this in my sermon. It talks about the, the story of the Israelites, that they saw the Red Sea part of it, they saw a wall of water on the side. They went on to see uh, manna come down from heaven, a water come from a hard rock, and yet they forgot what God did. They, they walked away from him. And so we can see it's, it's logical to think if we have objective evidence, that would point to me following God very zealously, um, being a very committed follower of him and not having any res- reservations about that. But, you know, that's logical, but we're, we're not logical people. We see the Israelites fell away. And, um, you know, even my sister, like, she should fight to persevere. She should, shouldn't lean on that alone as evidence of God. Oftentimes, the subjective evidence, what is more of a judgment call, is what sustains us more today, more day to day. We've talked about the fruit of the Spirit already. As we sense transformation happening in our own lives, uh, we, can, we can know that God is actually doing something, that He's really there. Someone who I spoke to probably a year and a half ago talked about how, and I can't really relate to this analogy, but how growing in your faith is kind of like growing in a marriage. That at first the communication might be a little disjointed, it might not be as clear, but as time goes on, that you just kind of develop this intuition of how um, the other person communicates with you. And so as we grow in our, our faith, we just kind of develop this sixth sense that God, God is there and He's really moving in our life. So as we've talked about the gospel needs to be held as first importance, we need to persevere in our faith, and it's in fact real. The question comes, how do we actually hold it as first importance? I'm going to involve a few, or mention a few points I'd like to, to leave you with. The first one's more of an observation and less of, less of an idea. Just saying that it involves effort. Oftentimes when we talk about our salvation, we talk about that it's, it's solely by God's grace. It's not by our own efforts. And that's true. When we talk about persevering in our faith, our effort is involved. In Philippians 2, Paul talks about how um, we need to continue to work out our, our salvation. So this idea, this is a command. We need to work it out. There's effort involved. There's diligence involved. 
But he goes on to say that it's God who works in you to will and act according to his purpose. So God is really the one behind the scenes, um, not only giving us the, the desire and motivation to, to take on these efforts, but making them effective. And so God's grace is not at all opposed to our effort. This idea of remembrance. We've talked about that with communion this morning. Last year I wrote a, a paper on this idea, actually it's part of my internship, or two years ago now. Um, oftentimes as you look through the Old Testament, you see God giving commands to people to um, put up physical symbols, signs, do ceremonies, to remember what God did. Um, as the Israelites passed through the Jordan River, just like they passed through the Red Sea, he tells them to put up 12 stones. So, significant. God is the one who engineered our minds, engineered our hearts. He knows how they work. So it's significant that God is telling them to put up these physical signs and symbols. Um, clearly, that's how our minds work. And so as we think of what that means for us, this is by far the most important thing to remember, that Jesus died on the cross for us. That God, when we deserved great punishment, God stepped in and himself took it many times over. There are other times in our life where Times where you look back and you can see God clearly stepping in, bringing you through a hard time. You know, what might be some uh, things you can set up to remind yourself of those? It might be journaling. It might be um, setting up just something around your house. It might be a picture on a wall. It might be a passage. Like I, I mentioned Isaiah 40 for me. Something that just helps you remember not only the, the logistics of what actually went down, but even the feelings and the, the, the emotions that you went through in that time. Because we're all going to go through more times when the gospel doesn't seem real to us. We should seek to view our whole lives in light of the gospel. There isn't any area of our life that is safe from the implications of the gospel. As we think about that, like oftentimes there are areas of our life that we'd like to to keep to ourselves and not not surrender to God. And it can be kind of a scary, intimidating process to give those over to him and to trust that he's going to bless it and use it for his purposes. But in the long run, we will be blessed and we'll take great joy in that. For me, like we all have different buckets in our life. I think of, you know, I have like my, my friends, my family, there's uh, my, my role here at High Point as an intern, um, you know, different hobbies, all of those things. If um, I surrender those to God and let him work out his purposes in them, I might be doing the same things on the surface, but radical transformation will happen. And we see that in Paul. Paul talks about his own transformation. He talks about how he used to be someone who persecuted the church, he used to drag people off to prison, and now he is an apostle. And he says, God's grace to me was not without effect. And lastly, we need to remember what we'll become. Nick preached a couple weeks ago, and he talked about this idea that if we could see uh, ourselves in our heavenly state when we're fully redeemed, that we'd be tempted to bow down and worship each other because we'd be so glorious. So we have a vision in mind of what we're to become. Suddenly all these efforts, um, what might seem arduous or like an obligation, no longer is that the case. Now we can undertake those in joy. And we see that in the life of Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1-2 describes him as someone who's setting our example also in this respect of remembering what he's, going, what he's coming into. It says that as the author and perfecter of our faith, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. As Jesus knew the glory he was coming into, and because of that, he was able to laugh at the shame that was put on him. He was able to endure something as shameful as a cross and as painful as a cross. So when we think about that, let's remember what we're coming into. Let me pray to close us. Lord, I pray that we would remember what you did on the cross. That you put up with not only great physical pain, but you put up with uh, the, the full wrath of God, which we can't even begin to comprehend. Pray that we would remind ourselves of that daily and the implications of that, that they would govern the way we go about every day, that we would persevere in our faith. 
I pray for those who are going through hard times right now, people who's, for whatever reason, it just doesn't seem the gospel's real. You just don't feel the, as strong of a subjective awareness that you're there. I pray that you would bless them with that revival and that awareness, that they would sense your love. I pray uh, just for the members of this congregation, too, that we could come around each other and, and help those people and help them persevere. Pray these things in your name. Amen.